The Hebrides are a group of islands on the west coast of Scotland. They're some of the most beautiful places in the UK, and also the hardest to get around. You're dealing with ferries, you're dealing with bad weather, you're dealing with mountains. It takes a long time, it's very expensive to deliver, particularly in the world of COVID when you want to reduce human interaction. So getting from A to B quickly is a challenge. This can make logistics difficult. It took a very long time, it was very inefficient, getting pathology samples from these remote areas back to the pathology lab. It led to degradation of samples, it led to poor service outcomes, it led to people not getting treatment as quick as they could or should have done because the sample was sitting on a truck which perhaps only visited once every 36 hours. So what if you could avoid the obstacles, the rocky hills and choppy ocean, by simply going over them? We said, right, we can do this with drones and we can significantly improve the service levels. This is Duncan Walker, chief executive of Skyports. Skyports partnered with the NHS in 2020 to run a trial using drones. We flew the routes that the trucks were doing once a day, 17, 18 times a day. Um, We could turn a 36-hour journey into a 36-minute journey and really make it on demand. So the outline medical practices were saying, We've got a sample that needs collection, it's an urgent sample, we would fly down there, be back at the pathology lab. Within 20 minutes, it would be processed within 30 minutes, and treatment in some cases was being administered within the hour. Using drones can radically reduce delivery times, but it comes with its own set of challenges. The technical challenges are real. There's complexity communicating with a drone that's flying at 120 miles an hour that's 50 miles away over the sea. So we had to put satellite communication on all of our drones. Obviously the weather is is changing very frequently in the Scottish islands, so we had to have a lot of contingency and parameters on the drones. We said, okay, if the wind changes in very short space of time, what does the drone do? The drones have to be able to cope with the elements and the unexpected. We're pushing these drones to the limit, but with a bunch of contingency. So you don't want to be landing with zero battery. You're always landing with 20, 25% battery. The conditions are changing on you all of the time. There's a difference between flying 100 kilometres or 50, 60 miles with a tailwind and a 60 mile an hour headwind. Plus, they have to be able to avoid other users of the airspace. And we had to deal with things like Coast Guard police helicopters, which do non-standard routes. So there's a very dynamic environment that we have to work with. And in fact, in our very first flight up in Scotland, we had a Coast Guard that whizzed through our flight path. Fortunately, all of the technology systems worked. We managed to loiter our drone, stop it going forward. But yeah, lot, lots of real-life challenges, many of which are very hard to predict until they come to reality. The trial was a success, and this is far from the only area drones could make a difference. 130,000 tankers go through Singapore ports, one of the busiest ports in the world, every year. And each of those uh, tankers has to submit paperwork before it's allowed to dock, and they have to submit uh, what they call bunker samples, which are fuel samples, both for environmental monitoring, but also because they don't want to be damaging their engines, which are hugely expensive. Uh, The current process is that people on a small rib, a tiny little boat, go out to these huge tankers. It takes four or five hours, it's very, very expensive. It costs six or $700 time to get a little rib out there. It's also very unsafe because you've got these tiny boats next to these giant tankers. So we've started flying the same things back and forth. We've turned the four or five hour journey into a 15 minute journey and it's got no emissions. And the, the size of that market, whilst it sounds fairly niche, is actually huge. You've got 130,000 ships going through Singapore port, but there are 50 Singapores around the world. 
Drones can also be used in surveying the environment for water management or monitoring wildlife. There's a huge application for these drones. I think that the scope for it is so big that there are endless opportunities around the world. Drones will absolutely be an increasing part of everyday life. I'm convinced they will because of the service level and because of the business case that they provide. We are only at the very, very start of seeing what impact they can make. But drones are just the beginning. We're on the cusp of the third revolution of flight, and it's going to change everything. This time on Future Lab, brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed, join me, Lucy Johnston, as I explore the way we're opening up the skies and how your first trip in a flying taxi is much closer than you think. This is really just the beginning of what's going to be possible in terms of electric aviation. Yeah, that's 100% not sci-fi anymore. It was for, for many decades, but it's now a very real industry. There's about 200 vehicle manufacturers out there making these air taxis. Something intrinsically human about wanting to be able to explore the world and being able to do it in the air is just a, a truly extraordinary thing. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. In earlier episodes of the podcast, we heard about the Biochip, a small 9x9mm microchip that can run multiple tests at a time, making diagnoses for various diseases faster and easier. Randox has been at the forefront of a new test that can distinguish type 1 from type 2 diabetes. Diabetes affects nearly 4 million people in the UK, with up to a million more who haven't yet been diagnosed. And by 2030, the number of those living with diabetes may be upwards of 5.5 million. Despite everything that's known about diabetes, up to 15% of those affected have had an incorrect diagnosis about the type of diabetes they have. Type 1 is an autoimmune disease where the body fails to produce enough insulin and affects 10% of all diabetics. Type 2 is the body's inability to respond to insulin in a phenomenon known as insulin resistance. Both types cause abnormally high blood sugar levels. Distinguishing between the two can be difficult as symptoms overlap and the misclassification of diabetes can result in insufficient management and poor control of blood sugar levels. The scientists at Randox noticed a need for better discrimination between types of diabetes. Later, we'll hear more about how they developed a biochip to correctly classify patients with diabetes. For now, back to the Future Lab podcast. I've always been fascinated in transport and travel. As a small kid, I used to wake my parents up on the weekend and say, can we go and watch the planes at the airport? This is Andrew McMillan from Vertical Aerospace. Andrew worked for many years at the UK's biggest airport, Heathrow. It is one of the reasons I came to Vertical, because I was really, really interested in new ways to fly and new ways to connect across the country and really fascinated by the idea that we're on the cusp of a, a, a third revolution in flight. And knowing how important the previous revolutions in flight have been thought that was pretty cool. 
Flight has gone through two previous revolutions. The first one, thanks to two brothers at the turn of the 20th century. Powered flight, of course, started with the Wright brothers. Vertical listed on the New York Stock Exchange on the anniversary of the Wright brothers' first flight, which is coincidence, but it's quite a nice coincidence. So that got everybody up in the air and flying with control and with power of flight. And then the next revolution was the jet engine and the jet age. And suddenly that ability to fly became, all of the world became accessible and at a price and an accessibility for everybody and a safety that was simply unimaginable. This form of flight has allowed people to travel across the world. It's changed the face of the planet for better, bringing us closer to each other, but also for worse, contributing an estimated 3.5% towards global heating. But this third revolution could make transport much greener. What's happening now is the range of different technologies are coming together to open up different ways of flying. And the key technologies there are things like battery technology, which means we can electrify it. It's different digital technologies, which means we can fly the aircraft in a different way. And of course, materials technologies that make them lighter and stronger and things of that sort. So that suddenly there's a whole different series of types of flying. The biggest advance of all has been in battery technology. So you've seen a significant increase in what batteries are capable of. And that'll keep going, by the way. We've just hit the threshold where electric flight with batteries is plausible and is going to happen with commercially available batteries. But beyond that, that's going to keep increasing range or capability or payload, whatever it is on the aircraft. This revolution includes the drones we heard about earlier, but something else that's really exciting is the idea of electric flight for passengers. Vertical aerospace is working to make flying personal and affordable and carbon-free and to create a new way of flying. In Vertical's case, that's building an electronic vertical and takeoff and landing aircraft, which will be able to go up and down like a helicopter and then will fly horizontally and then fly you, in our case, around about 100 miles. It's vastly quieter, it's much safer than a helicopter and of a different type of economics. And suddenly it means different kinds of journeys become possible. And these aren't 20 or even 10 years away. We're talking three years. So what everybody's now saying is that things that looked like fantasy even 10 years ago, even five years ago, are now becoming reality. If you'd have talked to me in my old world five years ago, I'd have probably said, this sounds really interesting, but it's not going to happen for ages and ages. But there has been a big step forward in the technologies and something that was futuristic and felt like something that was far off only a few years ago is now becoming realistic very quickly. And so Vertical's working to certify the VX4 in a few years with the UK Civil Aviation Authority and other aviation authorities around the world. So it'll be flying by 2025. This is exciting for several reasons. The champions of the electric flight revolution argue it will lead to quieter, safer and more sustainable transport. There is a need, and part of the third revolution of flying is to make flying sustainable. And that includes many kinds of flight. And electrifying flight is one of the steps that will help with that. One of the things that's amazing about the EV tolls is that for the first time, it's it's an application where you can electrify passenger flight. And it means that it's zero emissions on operations. And even on the current UK grid, 
on a lot of trips, you'll be better getting in an EV toll and taking the trip than getting on a, a, certainly a diesel train. Vertical Aerospace are currently designing and building the Sky Taxi of tomorrow. Our first aircraft will fly 100 miles at a, somewhere between 150 miles an hour to 200 miles an hour top speed. It'll have a pilot, have four passengers. They'll be able to carry luggage as well. We currently have 1,350, 1,350 pre-orders around the world with the likes of American Airlines and Virgin Atlantic and uh, Japan Airlines and Golden Brazil. So around the world, you're seeing serious airlines now keen on getting these things in the airs and actually flying people. Their Sky Taxi is called the VX4. It's a pretty amazing looking craft. It's like a very sleek helicopter body with two long wings with vertical propellers. It kind of looks like something Batman might fly. It looks probably closest to an an aeroplane, but almost an aeroplane crossed with a helicopter. And then perhaps not quite like either of them altogether. It has a, a pilot and it has four passengers in a cabin that I think is not dissimilar from a Black London cab on the inside. It has a wing, 13 metres across, and it has eight propellers on that wing. And when taking off vertically or landing vertically, they will lift it off the ground like a helicopter with all of those eight propellers facing upwards. And then the aircraft will transition into level flight where the four forward propellers will tilt forward and will take the aircraft forward like a propeller aeroplane and the four in the back will stow and stop turning. These eight propellers have a few advantages over a helicopter's one. Having lots of propellers versus one big one does reduce the noise. And the other thing it does is it gives you more redundancy and more safety. One of the big challenges with a helicopter is you've got one rotor, sometimes two. And if something goes wrong with that, you've got a real problem. With this aircraft, you've got redundancy with that. There are three key areas where Andrew thinks flying taxis could really take off. One is, yeah, airport transfer, where you've got particularly big hub airports, people flying in long haul, and it's a real nuisance to get to various places from the airport. And it's a nuisance either because there's a gap in the transport, and it means that trips like, for example, Heathrow to Cambridge is one example we often use. At the moment, you either have to go around the N25, and we all know how terrible that is, Or if you're on the train, you've got two changes, I think it is, and it takes you 90 minutes, two hours. And if you could just get over the top of that and fly, it's 20, 30 minutes, and you can do it all in a sustainable, zero emissions in operation way. Then, just like the drones, these flying taxis can connect hard-to-reach places. I mean, a classic in this country would be Transpennines. If you've ever tried to get from Manchester to Leeds even, or, I don't know, Liverpool to Hull, you know, it's not actually that far as the crow flies, but it's a right pain because the M62 and the train are both very slow and there are, there are gaps in the network. And you can find them all around the country, you can find them all around the world. And finally, there's tourism. So there are often islands or maybe there's a hotel or a resort or a particular place that people like to get to or an event. I mean, I actually think of something like Goodwood or something like maybe Silverstone or the big golf tournaments or the big sport tournaments or anything of that sort, where maybe it's one-off or maybe it's a, as a longer-term tourist kind of thing. And at the moment, it's probably a slow ferry trip or a long winding road trip. And this is a way of short-circuiting that. 
But these sky taxis are only part of the puzzle. We need to provide the right infrastructure on the ground if we're going to see a revolution in the skies. After the break. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Diabetes is one of the most common chronic diseases amongst those in the UK, yet up to 15% of sufferers have been misdiagnosed with the wrong type of diabetes. Randox has developed a type 1 diabetes genetic risk biochip that can discriminate between the two types. This biochip test provides doctors peace of mind, knowing their patients are accurately diagnosed and given effective treatments that will improve their condition. This test detects 10 genetic variants linked to type 1 diabetes which can be used to generate an overall genetic risk score. Those with high genetic risk are more likely to have type 1, while those with a low genetic risk score are more likely to have type 2. Individuals who should get tested include young adults with a new or previous diabetes diagnosis, those with type 2 diabetes and atypical features such as normal weight and insulin levels, as well as those with poorly controlled diabetes. With the Randox Type 1 Diabetes Genetic Risk Test, individuals can take control of their own health. Precision medicine paves the way for a healthier future. To learn more, please visit randoxhealth.com. Flying taxis are coming our way and are going to change the way we travel. But there's a lot more to work on than simply the taxis themselves. We were talking about the emergence of uh, new forms of transportation and how that impacted cities. This is Duncan Walker from Skyports again. Duncan saw flying as an urban inevitability. I didn't come to it from an aviation perspective. A lot of people in the industry and in the company are aviation people through and through. But I came at it from more of a perspective of how cities are evolving and the complexities of infrastructure on the ground that is at capacity. There's no more space on the roads. Building tunnels under cities is incredibly expensive. But there's increasing demand. The world is urbanizing. Congestion is getting worse and worse. There's the green agenda as well. A lot of combustion engine vehicles making cities not very nice places to live in. So I was thinking about it more from a logistics and city perspective than a pure aviation perspective. And so drone services are actually only half of what his company does. So we started Skyports with the mission of providing ground infrastructure. Think about miniature airports all over cities to allow people and goods packages to move around cities more efficiently. The densest parts of the cities, the city centres, are the places which are often hardest to get to, there's the most congestion. And so we identified pretty early on that they're going to need safe, secure landing areas, heliports or vertiports as we call them for electric vehicles. There's a lot of complexity around urban planning, about permitting, about social acceptance, about the technology required, particularly when you get to autonomy. So we deal with all of that. In some ways, these are like airports, but in others, they are totally different. I'll do the similarities first. The similarities are you are still working under all of the, what they call the aerodrome regulations, i.e. how airports are certified and regulated. You are still working with the same constraints around airspace to make it uh, as safe as it possibly can be. Some of the principles are the same in terms of how vehicles approach and, and depart. 
But that's largely where it ends. So for this industry to be successful, you're going to need lots and lots of vertiports, preferably in the densest part of the cities. That means space is constrained. So these are much, much smaller than airports, more akin to, to heliports. They're all electric, so they need a, a, a lot of electricity capacity. They deal with autonomy, which traditional airports don't. And then the sheer number of them will be higher. Duncan knows there are a lot of challenges for the industry, technically and also in public acceptance. That relies on technology, it relies on regulation, and particularly it relies on the noise profile of these vehicles. So there's a few reasons helicopters aren't more prolific than they are. Price point, safety record, but particularly noise. They are not very well accepted in city centres because they're noisy. And vertiports, because the vehicles are, are electric, should be able to accommodate that noise challenge much better than the existing helicopter market. The aim of the industry is to be no noisier than the background noise level in the city. So in theory, you should not be able to hear these drones, certainly in, the, in free flight, and I've seen many of them fly. As they're going past, you just don't know that they're, they're, they're near silent. It's like an electric car when it passes, you just don't know it's there. In takeoff and landing is there, it's the noisiest part of their journey. But even then, the sound of a lawnmower isn't often used comparable to the noise profile that these things generate. And will this change the lives of regular folk? Or will it be another way for the mega-rich to skip traffic? It's definitely not an option for the super-rich. So this industry becomes successful if it is accessible to normal people. The vision is that you or I jump in one of these things as part of our normal transportation solutions. And the goal is to make this no more expensive than an UberX, so luxury Uber. And if we can achieve that, then, then, then it is operating at a scale that the industry wants. What no one in the industry is trying to do is just replace helicopters with electric helicopters. That, that, that's not the ambition. It's a nice side effect that you take some polluting vehicles out of the sky and put them with non-polluting vehicles. But the game is to massively increase the scale of the industry, not to replicate the existing industry, which is just uh, for the super rich. And something that's absolutely integral to get right is safety. Aviation safety regulation really is second to none. We have made flying the safest thing you can do, with the partial exception, sadly, of helicopters, just because of the inherent mechanics of a helicopter. We kind of take it for granted, but Flying in a big commercial aircraft is one of the safest ways you can travel. It's on par with, with walking. It's certainly safer than being in a car. One of the things we're doing with these new electric vehicles, these EVTOLs we're building, is building them to those kind of standards so that people will be able to get on them and know that they're incredibly safe. But it's, it's somewhat miraculous seeing that, isn't it? Andrew and Duncan have both flown these in simulators and are confident it'll be a breeze for trained pilots. I'm not a pilot, but my test for this is me on a simulator. And um, when I've been in a, an aeroplane simulator, probably about one in three I managed to get back down on the runway in one, roughly one piece. Helicopters I crashed trying to take off. So far in the VX4 simulator, I actually managed to get them up and down reasonably easily. And the plan is to eventually move to autonomous vehicles, which comes with its own challenges, like cybersecurity. It's about redundancy, it's about encryption. That's an ever, a, a, a threat that is forever out there, I think. And, uh, we've got to be one step ahead. So pilots to start. There are a few vehicle manufacturers out there that are going straight to autonomy. Whisk is a good example, which is a Boeing-owned company. 
they have aspirations of going straight to autonomy. That means they'll be slightly behind others in terms of when they launch their targets in 2027, 2028, rather than 2024, 2025. Andrew and Duncan are both confident the public will soon be fully on board with this new technology. Did a survey not that long ago across Europe and the UK and asked people about this, and and I think it was 83% of people when it was explained to them, were really positive. They said, oh, yeah, we'd quite like to see that. I'd love to get on it. And I have to say the most common question I get asked is, when can I have a go? When can I ride? The things that people will want to be reassured on is safety. They'll want to be reassured on noise if there's an overflight. And they'll want to have a sense that it's a worthwhile technology. And I guess that's true of most things, isn't it? And when we've Look back at transport innovation, for example. We did a white paper last year, it's on our website, and we went back and had a look at, we found this great headline from the 1920s about cars and how they were the devil's work and they were taking over cities and they were terrifying and dangerous and so on and so forth. And it is actually true, of course, cars are quite dangerous. They were a lot more dangerous then than they are now, but they are actually quite dangerous things. Yet, The way that cars have transformed our societies and lives is profound. And now most people, many people, couldn't live without a car. And almost everybody, certainly in in this country, has been in a car huge numbers of times in their lives. So these things do take a while for people to accept them. And there's always a kind of mixed set of views and a set of worries. And I think that will happen with the third revolution of flight as well. So we've done some really interesting studies and practical tests with the public. So when we flew in Singapore, we flew with Volocopter, which is one of the vehicle manufacturers, and we did some feedback surveys before and some feedback surveys after. There was a lot of scepticism before we flew about what it is and how it could be beneficial to everybody and concerns about noise and and other bits and pieces. We did the same questions after we flew and there was a sea change in the feedback and people realised it was quiet, they realised it was safe, they realised that it could be useful to everyday life. Um, So a lot of it, I think, is about public education in order to get that level of public acceptance. And from here on out, the sky really is the limit. I mean, anybody who has spent time in London, lives in London, knows what it's like, particularly pre-COVID, in terms of busy skies. And the skies over southern England are some of the busiest, most complex bits of airspace in the world. We're going to see drones and we're going to see various kinds of aircraft at various kind of altitudes wanting to use that space. And that's going to be amazing. I mean, it's going to create all kinds of connections and possibilities which we probably can't even wrap our heads around quite yet, what that's going to lead to. But it does mean we're going to have to manage some of that space in a slightly different way. And we're going to have to think about how we do that safely and how we, the kind of jargon is how we integrate it all so that all of these things moving around can see each other, stay out of each other's way, be managed in a safe way. And it is one of the things we need to get to grips with is how we we change that and we do it in a kind of timely way. Our big piece of work for the next three years is a series of test flights, accumulating a lot of data and a lot of experiences. The next challenge, I guess, linked to that, and we touched on this just before, is then starting to build some of them. Over time, the number of these will increase, and indeed the number of people on any of them. It won't be all on day one. There will be a quite a lot of work to do to start producing enough of these. And one of the things we're certainly seeing is there's lots of demand in lots of parts of the world. 
So to get up to really high density in any given place will take a little bit of time. So eventually over time, I think you'll see quite a dense network of vehicles like this that will mean that we'll be able to move around in a very different way. In the same way that adding in taxis or even, you know, the emergence of things like Uber and things change the way you get around city. Viva la revolution. Thanks very much to Andrew McMillan from Vertical Aerospace and Duncan Walker from Skyports. Before you go, if you're enjoying this series, you can meet some of the people behind these stories and try out some of this technology for yourself at Future Lab Live, the exhibition I curate at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, which this year takes place from the 23rd to the 26th of June. You can get your tickets online now, and I hope to see you there. In the meantime, please rate, review, and follow the series. This was Future Lab, the podcast, brought to you by Randox and the Goodwood Festival of Speed. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. <laughs>